Well, it's really, really good to have the Howards here this morning. Um, just very thankful for uh, the Lord orchestrating uh, all the events that have led to them being here. Um, just so thankful for uh, God's grace and sovereignty in all of that and uh, excited for um, just ministry over the next um, few months as they get settled and into the fall. We're looking forward to have a lot going on and we're looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, um, I'm excited for all of you to get to know them uh, like Bethany, Bethany and I do a little bit and uh, just just thrilled that they they are here. Um, make sure you stay for lunch today. Um, it's provided for you. So uh, no reason not to stay. Right. So uh, right after the service, we'll be downstairs in the fellowship hall and uh, greet them, say hi to them and uh, welcome them to southeast Michigan. Um, so uh, open your Bibles up to Habakkuk, which is where we're going to be this morning as we were last week. Uh, if you weren't here last week, um, maybe I'll give you an extra minute to find it. I said, go to Matthew and turn left and you will find it eventually. If you hit Exodus, you've gone too far, right? So um, if you're a parent, I'm sure that you have heard the words, that's not fair before. I heard those words yesterday at my house, actually. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard it multiple times. And it's interesting when you think about that, the fact that children learn so quickly to cry out against a perceived injustice or a real injustice, I think shows that we, we are made in the image of God and the idea of justice, of fairness, of what is right and equitable is rooted in us. I mean, we long for justice. We, we want the right thing to be done. And I, that's obviously because we're made in God's image. Now, we live in a fallen state. And so a lot of times our idea of justice tends to be centered on self rather than a biblical concept of justice. Sometimes our concept of what is unjust, uh, we think it's when I don't get what I want. Something becomes not fair or not just when I don't receive things the way that I want them to come to me. And so we don't think about justice in the biblical sense. And if you look around at the broader culture, a lot of the issues being discussed in the broader culture have to do with the idea of justice. What is right? What is equitable? What is fair? What is just? I don't know if you've seen this, but the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope just pronounced that uh, it's going to come into official Catholic teaching that the death penalty is now considered, according to the Catholic Church, an unjust and unfair uh, punishment for, for a crime committed. Uh, so that's sort of brought that into the national conversation. Um, the entire LGBT movement really is... is presented as a fight for what is right or equitable, according to them, what is just. Um, it's, it's centered on that concept of justice. It's a longing for what is, what is equitable and what is fair. People think about the concept of justice a lot in our world. They argue about it. They talk about it. We try to understand it. Movies are often made with people wrestling with this idea of justice and trying to work out what it means for things to be right and fair. And of course, as fallen human beings, we, we don't quite get it right. We don't really understand justice as God explains it in his word. And because of that, we perceive it incorrectly. This week, 
I um, started installing some flooring in my basement. And uh, when Mike Nichols and I started on this, um, the wall that we were starting on wasn't perfectly straight. It was bowed out. And thankfully, we started, we noticed that. And so we were able to adjust how we put the flooring in and sort of manage that. And it took a little bit of extra work, but we had to deal with it and we dealt with it. And I think things are going in fairly straight and fairly evenly at this point. But when you think about something not being straight or not being right, when it comes to our sense of justice, because of our brokenness, our sense of justice is bowed. It's bent out of shape. And so we don't see things fairly and rightly. And we don't even realize it most of the time when we come to something that has to do with justice. And so because of all of that, we have to start, when we think about justice, we have to start with the biblical concept of God's justice. What does it mean that God is just? Psalm 37 says, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. God loves justice. And so we have to start there. And so to say that God is just here, that he loves justice, means that he always does what is right and equitable. Okay, that's a good starting place, but... How does God determine what is right and equitable? I mean, as he operates in the scope of history, how does God Almighty say, this is right, this is equitable, this is unjust? One theologian said it this way, Wayne Grudem, God's righteousness or his justice, similar ideas, means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Okay, you say, that's good, but it only helps so much because does that mean that God decides whatever is just and he could actually decide that something different is just? That he could sort of organize the universe however he wants to and that God could have said stealing things from other people is actually what is just. And so we really could have had nine commandments instead of ten commandments if God would have decided to make things that way. Well, no, obviously that's not the case because this is important. God's justice does not operate apart from his other attributes. Now, I know we're getting into deep waters right off the bat. I sort of tossed you in the deep end here, but all of this is important for us as we build up to the second part of the book of Habakkuk. And it's vital that you understand God's justice is not sort of like this appendage attribute that's operating out here on its own apart from everything else that God is. You can't think of his justice as one part of God and everything else as different than his justice. They're not in competition. God's justice moves in concert with his love and with his holiness and with his goodness. God has a holy justice. He has a good and a loving justice. So his justice, what is right and equitable, flows out of who he is. It is not arbitrary. It is not random. It is a reflection of the character of God. And ultimately, God will do what is right and equitable. And then here's the landing point for this. Ultimately, what is right and equitable is that God receives glory. Because he deserves it. 
That is what biblical justice ultimately is about. It's about God receiving glory for who he is because he does the holy, just, right, and good thing. Now, all of that matters. A little systematic theology lesson there, right? But all of that matters immensely as you think about the book of Habakkuk. In the book of Habakkuk, God's justice is under question. Habakkuk is looking around at the world, at what is happening in Judah, the southern kingdom. He's looking around at what God promises will happen with Babylon. And he's, he's looking at God's character, what he knows to be true of God, that he's holy, that he's good, that he's just. And Habakkuk is saying, I, these things aren't matching up. I'm not able to square what I'm seeing here. And so amazingly enough, in this little book, Habakkuk comes to God and he asks God about this discrepancy. And he actually has a conversation with God about what God is doing and his justice. And it's an amazing thing. Now, last week, if you were here with us, we started walking through this conversation between the prophet Habakkuk and between God. And this week, I want to recap that, bring you up to speed, and then we're going to finish the book this morning, okay? But to understand this book, you have to understand that it is a conversation between the prophet Habakkuk and between God. And so we start in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, with this question from Habakkuk. Why does a just God allow injustice to flourish in Judah? So remember, Habakkuk is living, he's a prophet, he's living in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has been carried away into exile about a hundred years earlier. The southern kingdom is continuing on with Jerusalem there. And Habakkuk is looking around at all the wickedness, all the violence, He's seeing all of this unfold, and he's remembering God's covenant promises to Israel, to Judah. And he's remembering God's promises of judgment, and he's saying, God, what is going on? Why are you letting injustice and violence flourish in your nation? Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. So the law is paralyzed. It's not even operating in the society and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. It's bowed. It's bent out of shape. The people are doing what they want. They're acting how they want. They're not living in accordance with God's justice. And Habakkuk says, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? And God responds. In chapter one, verses five through chapter one, verse 11, God answers and says, I'm I'm not sitting there idly by the law is not paralyzed. I know what's happening and I'm going to judge Judah for their sinfulness. I will raise up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans to judge sinful Judah. He's not ignoring. And in this Answer, God says, I'm going to raise up Babylon. And he describes the nation of Babylon as this arrogant, cruel, violent, wicked group of people. Look at chapter one, verse five. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the earth, through the breadth of the earth, to seize dwellings not their own. And he goes on to describe the Babylonians, and it is not very comfortable for Habakkuk. And so he hears this response from God, and he sees that God's going to raise up this particular group of people to be an instrument of justice on the nation of Judah. 
And it actually creates more questions in Habakkuk's mind. And he's going, wait a minute, this can't be right. I know Judah is sinning, but come on, (laughs) Babylon is way worse. And so he responds back to God. In chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. How can such a wicked people be your instrument of justice? This doesn't make sense. And he says, God, I know who you are. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? I mean, I know who you are. I know your character. You're just, you're holy, you're true. So how can you exalt and lift up this nation of wicked people impetuous, violent, and use them as an instrument of judgment on the nation of Judah. Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And that's what's going to happen. And Habakkuk doesn't understand it. What he knows of God is not matching up with his experience in the world and with what God promises is going to happen. And so rather than accuse God, and I think that's the difference here, he questions God, he asks, he wonders, but he doesn't accuse God. He comes to him humbly and in faith. And look at chapter 2 and verse 1. He positions himself to hear God's response. Verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And once again, God very graciously responds. We started into this section last week and we'll continue on, but God answers. Habakkuk, here's what you need to do. There's two parts to this. Live by faith is the first part, and we looked at that last week. The second part is, I will do justice And I will be glorified. First of all, he tells him to live by faith. And this is the heart of this little book of Habakkuk. Live by faith. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. He says, Habakkuk, I want you to write this down so that all the people of Judah can hear and can read the word that I'm going to give to you. For still... The vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Wait for God, even if it's taking a while. It's not going to be on your timetable. And then here's the heart of the vision in chapter four. Two ways to live. You can live like the Babylonians in arrogance and pride and be puffed up. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And then here's the way the righteous live. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And that's our ultimate response to God and to perceived injustices in the world is to trust him in the midst of that. Trust his character and trust his plans. Now, we come to the second portion of this answer. And I think this is helpful for Habakkuk and for us as well. We've seen God raise up this nation of Babylon. But now we find out that God is going to do justice even to the nation of Babylon. Even after they proceed in wickedness and violence, God is going to judge them as well. 
And he starts in verse 6, and he goes all the way to the end of this chapter, and he says, I'm going to do justice. And as you'll see later on, the way in which he does justice is ultimately about bringing himself glory for who he is. Babylon's cruelty is going to be used by God to judge Judah, but they will not get off for their sins. They are going to be culpable for what they do. God will hold them accountable for the ways that they transgress his law. They've exploited nations. They've tormented different nations. Look at the end of verse 5. Speaking of Babylon, his greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. He does all of this. And what's going to happen to Babylon is these nations are going to turn around and they are going to bring judgment on the nation of Babylon. Look at verse six. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? And then he goes on to say what these nations are going to say to Babylon. Now, let me kind of set this up for you here. Verses 6 through 20 of this chapter are an indictment. It's like reading an indictment, a listing of charges against someone. That's what's going on here. And the way that God has set this up is it's a series of woe statements, okay? Now, I know you know what those are. Woe, we don't use the word woe a lot in our, maybe you do, but I don't, right? Woe to my children. Do not, you know, like we don't do that. But God uses that statement here, and you know that. You've seen that in the New Testament as well. Jesus pronounces woes on the Pharisees, indictments against them for sinning, for doing what is wrong, for having a wrong perspective. And here we have five woes that are pronounced on the nation of Babylon. You can see in verse 6, right in the middle there, it starts with the word woe. Look at verse 9. You see it again. Woe. Verse 12. Woe verse 15, and then verse 19 as well. So there's five woes. And what happens here, each of these gives us a vice or a characteristic of the nation of Babylon. And then each one of these woe statements also tells us how God will bring judgment on them for their wickedness, for that particular sin. Now, this passage is incredibly instructive. Because it helps us to understand that God does not let wickedness go unpunished. He is just. He is right. Habakkuk was perceiving this as God raising up a wicked people and letting them go unpunished. But that's not how God operates. He will hold them to account for their sin. There's always a reckoning when we thumb our noses in the face of God's holy law. He is just and righteous. But what's also instructive about this passage, and I think is particularly helpful for us, the consequences for Babylon, the way in which God brings justice to them, actually grow out of the particular sins that they commit. Okay? In other words, sin becomes its own judgment. They set a course of living, they're arrogant, they do what they want to, and God sort of takes his hands off and gives them over to that particular sin, and then that sin becomes its own judgment. What happens is sin breaks us down, it destroys relationships, it destroys our interaction with others, it damages the way we perceive the world. Sin corrupts us. 
You can't just sin and have it be neutral and then expect God's judgment one day. Sin is its own judgment on us. And that's what happens to Babylon here. And that's so instructive for us who are tempted to sin. Remember, God will hold us accountable for our sin, even as believers in our own lives in the way in which we pursue sin. It may end up coming back to us. Now, there's sort of two ways of viewing the consequences of sin here. Okay, one way is to think of the consequence of sin as sort of a random judgment that God brings on you that's not related to the sin. It's sort of like paying a fine when you get a speeding ticket. The fine actually really doesn't have anything to do with the crime of speeding. It's a random judgment that has been set down to try to keep you from speeding in the future. Not saying they're bad. They're good, right? Helps people not speed. But that's not how sin works in our own lives. The consequences of sin that God is explaining will happen with Babylon here. This is like the guy who speeds and who runs his car off the road and slams into a tree. The result happens because of the sin. And that's what happens to Babylon here. Sin left unchecked will slam you into a tree. That's how it works. And what's amazing about this passage here is this Babylon is indicted for national and cultural sins. And this is, this is culture-wide. These things came very naturally to them. They're, of course, they're committed by individual people within the culture, but the culture became this way, became violent, became a culture that exploited other people. And it made sin look normal. This is what the New Testament calls the world. It's what makes sin and unrighteousness look normal, makes it look healthy, makes it look good. And God says he will judge for this with the nation of Babylon. So I want to read through this. It was all kind of preparation for understanding what's going on in this passage. We'll read through each one, list the woe, and show you how each one comes to pass in the lives of this nation. Okay, verse 6 in the middle there. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. What he's talking about there is the nation of Babylon requiring tribute payments from vassal nations. All right? Exploiting those nations. And this is going to come back to bite them. Look at verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. The roles will be reversed. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The second one in verse 9, 9 through 11. The Babylonians seek security and safety from their wealth and from their material gain. But ultimately, that won't bring them security. It will bring them shame. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Pursuing security and wealth only brings shame because it cannot bear the weight of resting on it and finding your security and safety and wealth. And so it brings shame to them. Verse 12, another woe here. Babylon has built their civilization on violence and cruelty, but ultimately that will come back to them 
as nothingness and vanity. Their entire civilization will be for naught. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. Is it not from the Lord of hosts, right? They pursue building a civilization on violence and ultimately it amounts to vanity and nothing. And we will get back to verse 14. I'm going to intentionally skip that for a moment. Verse 15. The culture pursues sexual exploitation. They get people drunk in order to exploit them. And rather than bringing glory and satisfaction, ultimately that brings shame. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And then finally, verses 18 and 19, this culture worships idols rather than the Lord, and that will amount to nothingness again. Verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Idols can't speak. They can't hear. They can't respond at all. They don't do anything for you. And so to build your lives on them is worthless. So it's a lot of detail there. But the point of this whole section is that God will not allow wickedness to go unpunished. It will come under his righteous judgment. Now, as as you're reading this section, maybe you're thinking, okay, this seems like God is sort of spinning his wheels, right? I mean, he's going to judge Judah with Babylon, and then he's going to judge Babylon with other people. And then I assume he's going to judge those other people for their wickedness with someone else. So when does this end? What is the point of all of this? It seems like God is sort of running around in circles here with his justice. What's going on here? What's the reason for all of this? And the reason for all of this is found in verse 14 and in verse 20. Look back at verse 14. This is why God does all of this, even if we don't understand and it looks mysterious in the moment. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's glory is his going public of all that he is. It's God putting on display his character. It's him revealing himself to us and saying, this is who I am. Worship and take delight in me. It's the beauty of his character. And God's actions in history, even if they're confusing and mysterious sometimes, God's actions in history put his character on display for us. And he is moving all history, every detail, everything that's happening, even the situation that's being described here. He's moving all of this to the time and the place where his glory will fill the entire earth. Everyone will know that he is God and he is beautiful and he is glorious. What is a sea without water? What well, doesn't make sense? 
And he says here, the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Sea without water doesn't make sense. And there will come a time where we, we will be so inundated with God's glory and with the knowledge of his glory that it'll cover everything and that we'll see his beauty in everything. And it'll be manifestly displayed for all to see. And now, even in the midst of history, when we don't see that fully, verse 20 is true. Look there. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We rest on these words. God rules from his temple now. He is over all. He's moving things according to his plan and his purposes. And our response, verse 20, is to keep silent before him. It's a call to the nations to not say anything that would bring them, them into further judgment. God's on the move. He will bring judgment, so be, be quiet. Don't say anything else that would bring indictment on you. I love the way Zechariah describes this. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So, let's remember the whole flow of this book again, because we're coming to the end in chapter 3. God has told Habakkuk he will do justice and he he will be glorified in all the earth. And Habakkuk must trust him. That's the heart of this book. The righteous live by faith. They trust what God is doing, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems like God is spinning in circles. They trust him because he ultimately will be glorified in what he does and he will put his character on display. And so Habakkuk has heard this word from God, and now it's his turn again to respond to it. And that's what he does in chapter 3. And what's really cool about this is Habakkuk's response that ends the book here is in the form of a song. And he responds to God's revelation of himself and what he's doing with a worship song. And that's really what all worship should be. That's what all of our singing should be. It should be a response to revelation of God. When God makes himself known in his word, we respond to that in praise and in worship. That's why we emphasize singing songs that are doctrinally rich, because we're responding to the truth about who God is. And that's what Habakkuk does here in this song and in this prayer. That's the last portion of the book. Habakkuk responds in faith in chapter 3. Now, remember who Habakkuk is. He's a prophet. He's an Israelite. He has been raised knowing the Old Testament, knowing the Torah, knowing the stories about the exodus of Israel from Egypt. He knows these stories. He understands that God has worked in the past. He knows the history. And the right response to that history is to believe and to fear God. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. He's saying, I've heard what you've done in the past. I know that you saved your people. I know that you brought victories over the Canaanites. I've heard that report. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. I respect it. I'm in awe of what you've done. And here's his prayer for this time that he's in now. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Have you ever prayed something like this before? It's a very biblical prayer. And the heart of it is, God, I know what you've done in the past. 
I know who you are. I've seen you work. I've seen you guide my life. I've seen biblically what you have done for your people. And I'm asking you to do the same thing again. I'm asking you to intervene. I'm asking you to remember mercy. To act on our behalf. That's what Habakkuk prays here. And that's a very biblical, very beautiful prayer rooted in God's revelation of himself. And so what he does now in verses 3 to 15 of this is he recounts God's work in the past. And he goes back and he says, I remember, I know that you have done these things in the past. And I want to read these to you quickly. We won't make a lot of comment on them. But he kind of breaks it up into a few sections. First of all, he describes God's presence as approaching Israel. And this is a beautiful description here in verses 3 through 7. Last summer, I, Bethany and I went to do a wedding in Montana. And one of the things I love about that area of the country is that you can look and you can see, it's called the big sky country for a good reason. You can see a very, very long way. And you can see a thunderstorm approaching from miles and miles and miles away. And it's beautiful and it's terrifying all at the same time. Can you imagine standing there as Israel and watching the presence of God move towards you as you're at the foot of Mount Sinai? That's what he's describing here. Look at verse 3. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Even other nations trembled when God approached. But why does God's presence come to his people? Over and over again in the Old Testament, you see God come to his people. What is he coming to do? He's coming as a warrior to defend his people. And that's described in verses 8 through 13. Look at this. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. Your threshold, the na- you threshed the nations in anger. And here's why. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And the most clear example of this is crushing Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Look at verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So what do we learn from this? Basically what Habakkuk's doing here with all this description of God coming as a warrior to defend his people, what Habakkuk is doing is he's looking back in faith and he's building faith 
by recounting God's actions and God's judgment and God's salvation of his people. And he's doing that by going back to the biblical narrative and he's building faith with that. How has God acted before? We can't expect him to act the same way again. That's faith. That's how we grow in faith. We immerse ourselves in the biblical text. We know the way in which God has worked in history where he has displayed his glory and we expect him to do the same type of thing again. That is faith. That is a demonstration of the faith that is called for in Habakkuk 2.4. But here's the thing. And this is where the faith part is, is difficult. God's action on our behalf doesn't always come on our timetable. Doesn't always come right when we want it to. Look at verse 16. Here Habakkuk pulls away from the biblical text and comes back to his own experience and his own prayer before the Lord here. Verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. That's quite a description. He is so unnerved by what is going to happen to Judah. He's so unnerved by God's judgment and God's sovereignty over history that it is impacting his physical body. Dramatic impact on him. God's action won't always come on our timetable and we sometimes have to wait. Look at the rest of verse 16. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. We wait for him in faith. And it's with that knowledge that we do have to wait and we have to trust that here Habakkuk pens probably maybe the most beautiful description of trust in God in the entire Bible. I love this. Let's start in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. What is he saying there? Judah is an agricultural society. If these things aren't happening, they don't have any way to live. This is everything. If there are no olives, if there's no figs, if there's no herds, flocks, this is it. There's no food in the grocery store at this point. The power's not on. Nothing that is necessary for life is happening here. Everything has been taken away. These are the most basic elements needed to live. This is what Habakkuk could expect when Babylon arrived. When God's judgment came, Babylon was cruel. They were overpowering. They were wicked. And the future did not look bright for Judah or for Habakkuk. And that reality is what makes verse 18 so unbelievable. The fact that in verse 17, he says, though, despite all of these things, despite the fact that everything has been taken away or will be taken away, despite all of that, here is his response. Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Twice in this verse, Habakkuk uses words that describe joy, happiness, a positive response to this. 
Two different words to describe his response to these circumstances when everything has been taken away. Now, let me dive into these words a little bit. The first word where it says rejoice. This is a word that is used to describe the feeling of a soldier after his battalion, after his army has won a victory. Now, I do not speak from personal experience here. I don't know what that's like. Maybe some of you do. But I can imagine in this time when you're in hand-to-hand combat, I mean, you have a sword and the other dude is right there with the sword and you're fighting and your guys are all around you and it's a mess and it's a melee and you're fighting and there's blood everywhere. And at the end of the day, you are still standing, you are still alive and you look around and your side has won the victory. I can imagine that the sense of joy from being alive and from knowing that you have vanquished your foe and you don't have to worry about them anymore, that has to be one of the highest senses of joy that you can have in this life. That reality, that experience, that is the word that Habakkuk uses here to describe his response to losing everything. The second one, take joy That is the joy that comes from being in the presence of God. That's the joy, the delight of the human spirit from being in the presence of the divine. Psalm 16 describes it this way. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Habakkuk is saying here that it is possible It is possible to have these two reactions of joy, even when everything that is valuable to us in this life is lost. This is not cheap joy. It's not haphazard. This is a joy that is fixed in that which is unchangeable. This is rock solid joy that will equip us to deal with anything. Anything that comes at us. This is not easy for me. It's not easy at all. But it is possible because Habakkuk is rooted in God's character and God's work in the past and God's covenant promises. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes my, me tread on my high places. Now, this is a very popular verse. I'm sure you've seen this before. There's signs that have this verse on them, and that's, that's good. That's fine. But this is not the only place in Scripture that this verse is used. These words are used. And the other place, a couple other places, but the other place that they're used is very significant for understanding why Habakkuk uses this to end his prayer of faith. The other place that this is used is in... 2 Samuel 22 and verse 34. You can see it there. I know it's ripped out of context. But the context of this is, this is in the last words of David. This is Davidic language. In 2 Samuel 22 and 23, David is praising the Lord for his faithfulness to him. As the king and all the work that God had done. 
So why is this so significant that this is Davidic language, that Habakkuk knew this language and intentionally inserted it here to speak of God's faithfulness, that God is his strength in the midst of difficulty? Why would he do that here? Well, think about it. God had promised to David an everlasting kingdom in 2 Samuel 7. And here... The very city of David, Jerusalem, is going to be overrun by the Babylonians. And the people of Judah are going to be carried away into exile. It seems like that promise that God made to David is not going to come to pass. When Habakkuk thinks about this, about what's going to happen through the Babylonians. At this point, the people forsaken God and Babylon's going to come in and they're going to take the city, take the kingdom and take the very land that God had promised away from them. But Habakkuk ends his prayer of faith here with these words because he is reminding himself and he's reminding the people of Judah that God is going to be faithful to his promise to David. He's not going back on it. Even though he's judging us now for our sin, he will be faithful to his promise. This psalm in 2 Samuel 22, this is David's psalm of praise to God for his faithfulness to him. And Habakkuk picks this up as an incredible reminder to the people of Judah. Despite the judgment for their sin, God's going to be faithful to his promises. And you know, ultimately, God's faithfulness to his promises to David is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the true son of David in the New Testament. And so I think this is a hope and an anticipation of God fulfilling that promise one day without knowing the detail. And all of this is why we can trust God no matter what. I mean, that's the message here. Believe him, trust him. He's good, he's just, he's holy. And one of the things that I learned very quickly in pastoral ministry is that people are hurting. People have issues. I have issues. Everybody does. We're broken. We live in a sinful world. Things are difficult. Things are hard. Everyone has different burdens to bear. At some point, everyone feels like verse 17 is true of them. I'm losing everything. I don't have what is necessary for life. And when you have that experience, come to these words. Trust God's character because he's done it in the past. He's been faithful to his people and he will be again in the future. Let me end with these words from Samuel Rutherford. Lay all your loads and your weights by faith upon Christ. Ease yourself. And let him bear all. That's faith. He can. He does. He will bear you. Let's pray. God, this is so difficult for us in our weakness to take joy, to exult in you when things are difficult. But God, we pray for the strength and the faith to be able to do this. It's not based on our ability. It's not based on our intellect, on our passion, on our devotion. It's fully based on you and your faithfulness. And so we, like Habakkuk, cry out to you. We fear you. We trust you. We rest on you. We want to ease ourselves of our burdens and put them on you in faith. 
that you know what's best. You're sovereign overall. We've seen that before and we will see it again. Thank you for this little book. Thank you for the word that it has brought to us. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with faith and joy even now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.